And welcome to Critical Book Club, or whatever the fuck name we actually decided to go with, because right now we are still a little bit undecided. I'm here with my friends Thomas Rotering and Alexis Russell. Thomas, how you doing? Thomas, how you, how you doing? Okay, there you go. <laughs> That's good. Alexis, how are you? I'm great. That's good to hear. Um, so we are here to discuss different books of academic settings for different ways, shapes, or forms. Maybe Academics Night, not the best way to put it, but we're here to kind of read a book, discuss it, and give our thoughts, and hopefully it ties into things in media, things in the news, things in culture. Um, in general, we're just kind of interested in continuing to further our education on certain topics, and we love talking about it as a group, so we thought it might be a good idea to record Anyway, um, Rotor, how, how's uh, your thoughts on the whole project? Well, I'm enjoying it so far. It's definitely getting me to read things outside of my comfort zone. Um, I am a biologist by training. That's a very pretentious way to say I got a degree in biology for my undergrad. Um, but I'm also interested in public health. I have my master's in public health policy from the University of Colorado. Um, so that's sort of the world that I live in, and I love to explore things outside of that, which is um, one reason I'm really looking forward to this book club. Um, yeah, so thanks thanks for having me on the podcast, Zach. Rotor also recently moved from the Midwest to the sunny shores of California, so how, how's that transition been going? Oh, it's good. I've never thought I would identify with San Francisco, but it's a beautiful city. Um, and I know I have a lot to learn from the people here. So I'm, uh, I'm happy to be in California. I will not call myself a Californian, at least for a very long time. <laughs> That's a shame. Alexis, how, uh, how about you? How, how are you feeling about everything? What's your background in? Um, well, I'm feeling great about it. I um, agree with Rotor in that it's a great opportunity to read things that we probably wouldn't typically read, which should be a goal for everyone. Um, I will say, moving forward, I will stick to my, like, 50-page-a-week goal, so then I don't have to read, like, 150 pages in one week. Um, <laughs> I'm a procrastinator by nature. But um, my background, um, I guess that's a weird way to put it, like, what background? I'm 24. But I'm a third-year law student at the University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law in Kentucky, and I am passionate about reforming the criminal justice system. I'm going to be a criminal defense attorney. And I'm also super liberal. I guess I'll just throw that out there. Because um, we're going to fight. We're just, we're just going to brawl on this podcast. And so, uh, yeah, I'm excited. Really excited. Um, don't know if I'm so excited about Rotor's book next month. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's great. Thank you for coming up with this idea and inviting me along. Absolutely. And uh, I think, it, is it fair to say we have a conservative from California and a liberal from Kentucky on this podcast <laughs> in Rotor and Alexis? <laughs> that is fair. Our that, podcast will be full of contradictions. Yeah, contradictions galore. And I guess I'm the deadbeat of the group. I got my undergrad in marketing from Grand Canyon University and currently working in the throes of capitalism as a marketing manager for a 
mid-size international brand. Probably shouldn't say it. My name is Zachary Douglas, by the way, um, and I'm hosting this week because I chose the book that we're reading. And I think it's probably a, a good time to transition into that. Um, well, maybe maybe I'll give another sentence or two on my background since you all did such great bios. But uh, I, I work mostly in like data analysis and uh, consumer reporting and trying to figure out how you get people to buy things and working in different aspects of both digital and traditional marketing. It's, it's higher level than I maybe expected that it would be coming out of college. Um, we work with companies in China. We work with companies in Europe. Um, it, it definitely has been a, a bigger world. And I think that it lends, uh, the career field that I've chosen maybe lends itself particularly well to the book that we read this month, uh, which was Weapons of Map Destruction, written by Kathy O'Neill. Um, so just a brief overview of the author. Uh, we thought that it would be good to maybe provide some context about who these people are that are writing the books that we read um, and whether or not they, uh, how, how we should be viewing them, I guess. I think it's always important to view things from a level of perspective and understanding the incentives that somebody may have in displaying a perspective or point of view. So Kathy Helen O'Neill is an American mathematician and author of the blog mathbabe.org. She also has written several books on data science, including Weapons of Math Destruction, which was published in 2016 and was read by all of us. She was the former director of the lead program in data practices at Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, Toe Center, and was employed as a data scientist consultant at Johnson Research Labs. She also attended UC Berkeley as an undergrad, received a PhD in mathematics, uh, mathematics excuse me, from Harvard University in 1999, and afterward held two positions in the mathematics department of MIT and Bernard College doing research in uh, arithmetic, uh, algebraic geometry. She left academia in 2007 and worked for four years in the finance industry, including two years as a hedge fund uh, at the hedge fund D.E. Shaw. After becoming disenchanted with the world of finance, O'Neill became involved with the Occupy Wall Street movement, participating in its alternative banking group. In its alternative banking group, in 2016, her book *Weapons of Math Destruction* was published and longlisted for the National Book Award for Nonfiction. She is still fighting to make us uh, reevaluate how we use algorithms to this day, calling for greater scrutiny in data analysis. Um, if you Google Kathy's name, uh, Kathy O'Neill's name, you'll find tons of speeches, sessions, uh, lectures that she's doing on this topic consistently pushing and fighting what she deems to be the good fight of how we frame data analysis from everything from state biopolitics to capitalism. Additionally, uh, yeah, so that's kind of who Kathy O'Neill is. These uh, kind of, we gathered these, this background from variety of sources, Wikipedia included, go to the references as always. Um, and so I think that that gives us some good context on the person who's writing this book. In general, uh, she academic who went private, was not happy with what she found in the private sector, and decided to work outside of the system and call uh, call um, greater scrutiny to the problems that she deemed to be within that sector. Uh, Alexis and Roder, do you have anything you'd like to add? She also talks a lot about it in the book, so I know that there's plenty more that we're leaving out, but I think she's probably a pretty credible person to be writing about this type of topic. Um, yes, I agree. Very credible. Although, uh, I don't know very much about this topic at all. Um, numbers make me cry. So I probably wouldn't know if she was full of crap. Um, but 
my layperson opinion is that she seems very qualified. I don't have much to add to that as well. Um, I think she is very qualified and she takes a very insightful look into what the numbers mean um, because I do think they tell a story and unfortunately um, that story isn't always pleasant. Yeah, I almost, she kind of strikes me after, as I read the book, she kind of strikes me as like your regular person who's being confronted with these things and going like, okay, why are we so heads down and not asking these questions? Like if you did grow up in this discipline, following the same rules that were pre-established for generations, or you're just told this is the right way because we're doing it that way, uh, you might have the same questions that she's arisen from, even though she has that formalized education and training. So, quick summary of the book. Weapons of Math Destruction was published in 2016. Uh, it's about the societal impact of algorithms. Um, it explores how some big data algorithms are increasingly used in ways that reinforce pre-existing inequality. Weapons of Math Destruction um, are what O'Neill refers to throughout the, books at, throughout the book as WMDs. And she deems these uh, WMDs as mathematical models or algorithms that claim to quantify important traits such as teacher quality, recidivism risk, creditworthiness, um, and a bunch of other things that she discusses throughout the book, but have harmful outcomes and often reinforce inequality, keeping the poor poorer and the rich richer. Uh, these three thi these uh, WMDs have three things in common, Apas uh, opacity, scale, and damage. They often, they're often uh, proprietary and otherwise shielded from prying eyes so they can affect uh, individuals while still being a black box in which we can't see into. They affect large numbers of individuals and increasingly uh, it has the chance that they can get it wrong for some of them when they're dealing with such wide numbers and generalizations. They have a ne negative effect on people and per perhaps by encoding racism or other biases into an algorithm or enabling predatory companies to advertise selectively to vulnerable people or even by causing things like a global financial crisis. In general, like said, we're talking about big data and the harms that it gives to people in all, all aspects of society, all aspects of lives that we even interact with from our schools to our prisons uh, to our credit scores and beyond. Big data can be a useful tool. O'Neill, I think, articulates in several, part, uh, several parts of the book and cites different examples of how it can be a useful tool. But also, the real focus is the harms that it's causing because they are being replicated and not checked, in her opinion, nearly enough by the free market forces that are around them. Rotor and Alexis, anything to add on just general summary, what the book's about, anything like that? No, you did great. Good job. Not for me. That was great. Well, it's, uh, you know, thank Kathy O'Neill. I'm just uh, summarizing. <laughs> but no, I thought it was a very interesting book. And um, like I said, a lot of these things, I, I numbers don't make me cry. They're not always my favorite. Uh, but I think that they tell a very interesting story and they can be used to fill in context. Uh, so it is really troubling as somebody like myself who claims to be someone who's kind of a data guy in their day-to-day -day or at their job uh, to see... If you're not careful, you're not skeptical, if you're not scrutinizing things enough, some of the harms that they can cause. I will say that I do recommend this book for anyone, regardless of if you're a numbers person or not. Kathy does a really great job of bringing in analogies and real world examples. Um, like she comes up with one 
like if she were creating an algorithm to maximize the ingredients that she already has in her refrigerator with her children's preferences for dinner. And that just really helped create a picture for when she really got into the super high level, um, very important topics that she discussed. And those topics do range from you know, political campaigns to uh, teachers and standardized tests to recidivism. Um, so it really covers a wide range of topics, meaning that unfortunately every single person is impacted by WMDs in our everyday life. So I would definitely recommend it and she does a very artful job of describing things in a way that are um, digestible for people who are not fluent in this type of stuff. Yeah, yeah, if I definitely. could just add on to that, I think that um, Kathleen does a great job of, uh, of really showing the mechanics of how some of these things work, because I think a lot of people hear that data is collected about them, and they really don't understand what that means. So that sort of means it's a race to a conspiracy theory that, um, you know, you just kind of assume and make these really broad statements about how your data or your internet life is being monitored and influencing other parts of your life, but um, Kathy has a really great way of showing how that plays out in your, in your everyday life or in certain situations, as opposed to just, you know, this idea of, it's a conspiracy, I'm sure, you know, my Google phone is listening to every word that I say and, and giving me a pop-up somewhere for an ad. Definitely. I think those are kind of the... Um, points in which there's some really good journalism that's done by O'Neill in the book. I think that she digs into those uh, kind of industry specifics in a lot of cases. And there's a couple cases where I kind of disagree with her. And we could talk about that as we get into it, just in terms of the uh, the bomb parts that she articulates. I think chapter two is called bomb parts. And she talks about the inner workings of models and algorithms and that kind of thing. But just taking that analogy of bomb parts a little bit further I think there are some industries where maybe she, um, maybe I'm misunderstanding things, but at least in the industry I work in, she discusses later in the book with Facebook marketing and, and some different things that I think are maybe miscontextualized in terms of how the inner workings of that data operates. So I'm excited to get into that discussion, but overall I think she does a really good job of making us, uh, or, or allowing the average person to understand industries that they might not typically interact with, such as hedge funds, um, risk analysis groups, two places that she spent a ton of time with, uh, and also dealing with things like economic inequality and how certain models affect people uh, in the 99%. I think she has a lot of credibility to speak on all three of those things based on her private industry experience and her experience within the Occupy Wall Street movement. I just think there's some times where maybe she's swinging out of her expertise, and we can get into that. Yeah. Um, so we all picked like three quotations that we thought maybe represent the book or ideas within the book uh, before we get into what will be kind of our main segment each week called Critical Questions, where we just have different discussion points or questions and, and get into thoughts and ideas about the book overall. But before we jump to that, like I said, three quotations. Um, I'm going to pitch it to Rotor and Alexis and let them read their quotation and kind of explain why they picked it and why they think it's a good representation of ideas in the book on face. So who wants to go first? Wow, really, really excited, both of you. Okay, Rotor. <laughs> Let me just shove my male privilege right in here and uh, 
go with my quotation. If you consider mathematical models as the engines of the digital economy, and in many ways they are, these auditors are opening the hoods, showing us how they work. This is a vital step so that we can equip these powerful engines with steering wheels and brakes. And of course, she's referring to digital auditors like herself and other research groups that sort of explore these algorithms um, and give us a better impression of what they represent. Okay, my quote is, though economists, wait, why did I just pronounce it like that? It's okay, I've been doing the same thing. to calculate costs for smog or agricultural runoffs or the extinction of the spotted owl, numbers can never express their value. And the same is often true of fairness and the common good in mathematical models. They're concepts that reside only in the human mind and they resist quantification. And since humans are in charge of making the models, they rarely go the extra mile or two to even try. It's just considered too difficult. But we need to impose human values on these systems, even at the cost of efficiency. So I just thought this was a really good kind of summary of the entire message of the book, which is that it's it's very much undeniable that big data and these mathematical models, in a lot of ways, they do make running the world more efficient. And they're good in a lot of ways. And I think Kathy does point out some mathematical models that haven't risen to the level of WMDs, meaning that they're not you know, nearly as destructive, opaque, things of that nature. But really, regardless, like, efficiency to me just doesn't matter when we really look at the injustices that are happening on so many fronts because of these models. And so we do, we need to step back and take a minute and really impose the one thing that kind of sets us apart from these machines, which is essentially our sense of morality and right and wrong. And yes, that will come at the cost of efficiency, but I don't care. We have to do it. I mean, it's ultimately our humanity, right? Like, it's hard to break what makes us humans and what humans value from those perspectives into numbers. I tend to agree with that. I think that's a great quotation. I think that probably represents what the book is about better than any other single thing or, or any other single quotation that I had kind of found or looked at and evaluated for this. So I, I, great pull. My turn. Um, so I actually picked a sentence that's from the last paragraph of the afterword. So this book has a conclusion and an afterword that was written a couple months later after the 2016 election. Um, the quotation that I selected is on page 231, and it reads, Algorithms are only going to become more ubiquitous in the coming years. We must demand that systems to we must demand that systems that hold algorithms accountable become ubiquitous as well. Let's start building a framework now to hold algorithms accountable for the long term. Let's base it on evidence that algorithms are legal, fair, and grounded in fact. And let's keep evolving what those things mean depending on the context. I think this quotation is particularly important because O'Neill is acknowledging that algorithms are not only probably inevitable, but are in the here and now. It's not something that we are predicting for the future. And they're only going to continue to proliferate um, because of the mass profits and incentives that it can drive for capitalism. At least in my mind, that's why we probably won't see algorithms go anywhere anytime soon, because people are heavily incentivized to generalize in ways that increase their wealth or 
increase their, their work efficiency and effectiveness. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that and articulate what is the world in which we can use these things responsibly because they are very powerful. And so to use these things responsibly, we have to find systems and develop systems that check those things to continually tune them to make them more precise, more accurate, and more just overall uh, moral, I guess, um, or fair, or however you want to frame that piece of it. But I also love that she says, let's keep evolving those things and what those things are depending on the context, because the more information and data we get, the more we learn. I always like to say, I'll change my mind when the facts change. And I think O'Neill kind of shares that perspective of the more we learn, the more we can adapt and be reflexive and make better models for the long term. Rotor, you had something you wanted to add? Yeah, just for anybody listening at home, um, maybe you want to take a swing at explaining what an algorithm is or um, how it maybe is deployed in the digital economy. Yeah, so um, for me, I, I like to use an example probably. Uh, it would make it, it's the most simple, at least for me to understand. So just your Facebook feed, your Twitter feed, your Instagram feed, pick a social media, YouTube, even Netflix. Algorithms are the mathematical equations that use your inputs to those systems, your likes, your comments, your clicks, your watches, your views, and then turns it into a systemized method to deliver you content that you are more likely to click on, comment on, watch, and etc. They're not always optimized for that. They're optimized for whatever the specific goal is. So if you want to optimize an algorithm for something that has the most shares, then you can optimize it towards that. If you want to optimize it on YouTube for something that's the most controversial, you can optimize it for that. But most most companies and algorithms that I deal with in my day-to-day uh, are optimized for engagement. So what people are interacting with the most. If you are liking something or engaging with something, your Google searches, your Facebook feed is all going to be optimized to give you that similar like-minded content kind of creates an echo chamber in a sense to where you're only getting things that it thinks that you like or will click on and won't give you things from outside your bubble because it thinks you are unlikely to engage with that. So algorithms, while not inherently in themselves problematic, can create pernicious feedback loops, a thing that O'Neill articulates as a problem with many WMDs. WMDs. Is that too high level? Does anybody have like a a common sense? Alexis, you want to give like a... (laughs) A layman's explanation of that for me? <laughs> no, I mean, I think you did a really good job um, bringing in the social media aspect because, I mean, it seems like people were kind of surprised to hear that Facebook is, you know, basically treating them as a product and that's how we get all of our advertisements and things like that. And then it's, you know, you always hear, well, wow, I was talking about this type of shoe or searching this type of shoe on Google, and then it popped up on Facebook, and, and really that's not, like, black magic or something. That's not an act of God. That is an algorithm, and uh, we're all affected by those. And to some degree, you know, and I think depending on the person, we love that. Like, we love having every single thing that we consume um, kind of meticulously just show up before us. Maybe it's out of convenience or maybe we just like to be in our comfort zones, but it is very dangerous, especially in this world we live in where like too many of our friends and family get their news only off of places like Facebook or Twitter. Um, So, I mean, I think overall, as you said, algorithms aren't just this devilish concept or anything, but unfortunately, as evidenced through every single chapter in this book, 
they are kind of becoming that more and more. And I think on social media, it's especially sinister. Yeah, and I'll just add in here um, a little bit of um, background from my biology experience. Um, so there's two basic types of feedback loops. There's positive feedback loops and negative feedback loops. Um, and that is not a description of their social value or of you know, whether this is a good or a bad thing um, to have in our society or to implement. What that describes is in a positive feedback system, uh, the system will essentially take an input and multiply the effects of that input. So that might be something like you know somebody's a conservative on Facebook, so you just blast them with conservative ads versus a negative feedback loop which takes inputs and seeks to counteract them. And these are more common in a biological system. So if your body suddenly is inundated with alcohol on a Friday night, your body will seek to reduce the effects and prevalence of alcohol by kind of getting that out of your system. I, I, I tested that hypothesis last night. Yeah, I, I, oh, many of us do. <laughs> but positive feedback loops are very rare in nature. Um, only a few examples are in the instance of an orgasm and the instance of giving birth where your body decides, okay, let's do this. And it just seeks to multiply the effects. Let's drill down on that. Let's drill down on that last point. <laughs> Let's drill down on that. Last yeah, you want to elaborate on how an orgasm is a positive feedback loop? What's <laughs> uh, related to um, uh, some chemical that's escaping me right now? Um, Dopamine? It's uh, oxytocin. Oxytocin, that's right. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really good context. Uh, thanks for bringing that in. Um, and like I said, I think yeah, that all you. three of these quotations do a good job of highlighting specific pieces of the book and just helping to break down some of those larger concepts into smaller bite-sized uh, little taglines. However, you can only get so much in a quotation, which is why I think it's important to have questions and discussion points that allow us to get into more detail. And so that's what we're going to do in our next segment. We're going to dive into the book to the thoughts and get a little more nuanced into the bigger ideas in the book and how we think about them, how we received them, and uh, if we do think O'Neill is doing an effective job in each aspect of those ideas um, in, her, in her fight to help us understand algorithms, data, and the harms that could potentially come with those things. So stay tuned. We're going to jump into that right now. All right. So like I said, welcome back. I think I said right now, and we probably didn't have an ad run during the in-between segments part. So anyway, we're back to do critical questions about weapons of math destruction, a book by Kathy O'Neill. For background information, listen to the last 20 minutes. Um, anyway, we all thought that we could craft a couple of questions or key discussion points that we found particularly interesting while reading the book. And we kind of ranked them, and we'll go and ping pong between us uh, on different questions that we all came up with. So I'm going to start, uh, and I will kind of read my first question, and then... We'll have a discussion about that piece and move on from there. So pretty simple. 
my first question is related to an industry that I actually work in. So on page 183, O'Neill claims that Facebook is like the Wizard of Oz because we don't see the human beings involved in the algorithm control. However, I work in this industry and I can message a Facebook business support representative with any questions related to how to improve my content to raise in people's news feeds, both organically and for through paid ads. Even though I don't get their secret formula, I'm given general rules and guidelines to improve my rankings. It's kind of like how O'Neill articulates credit scores work. They tell you to pay your bills on time, um, to stop opening up new credit cards and et cetera. But it's not the exact secret formula that ties what uh, what all the data that makes up a credit score is uh, together. You don't get to peek behind the curtain, but they give you the tips to kind of improve your score in general. I also can find hundreds, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of articles online with best practices echoing these guidelines from Facebook. And in addition, Facebook has its own education center that makes this kind of playbook information publicly available, spelling out many of the same things that you can find in those articles and through directly engaging with the Facebook business support representative. With this context, is this an issue that's one in media and reporting, or does the blame still lie on the company Facebook itself? Kind of like um, O'Neill is articulating that it is very much a WMD. I'm not so sure, given some of these other pieces of context around it. What do you all think? Well, I think some of what you've talked about are recent um, inventions based off all the public outcry, congressional hearings um, that have come about because people were surprised by how these operate. So this book may be a little bit outdated in that sense, but I think on on another level, it's more about how the average consumer or average Facebook user interacts and understands these mechanisms, not you, an elite marketing professional with access to information, the ability to access that information through a consumer or uh, through experts. Um, what the fuck? Who are they? Uh, support Facebook experts. business support representatives. Okay, so through support representatives, you understand the key terms to search, things like that. I think the more transparency, the better. But Facebook is probably one of becoming one of the more transparent of entities based off all the public scrutiny that has come upon them, and I think we ought to keep that up. Yeah, um, I think that's an interesting point for sure. I would maybe push back just a little bit. I think as early as like 2014, a lot of this data of how algorithm updates affect news feeds was very much publicly available. I just don't think people are that inquisitive about what's making up their Facebook feed. And so that kind of is what begs this question for me, not in that, mostly in that I, I don't think Facebook has ever been the most um, black box algorithm. I think each time that they've made algorithm updates since I've been in the industry, We've gotten pretty detailed reports on what those algorithm changes are. And maybe I'm an elite because I work within like marketing and directly engage with people at Facebook. But that's kind of why I include these other points of context about how you can just do a simple Google search about what's new in the new Facebook algorithm and see how they're valuing certain things. And they'll say this is more valuable now and this is less valuable now. And again, it doesn't give you the exact breakdowns, but neither does the same kind of information about credit scores. I also would argue that she articulates that credit scores are fairly like okay in terms of uh, she, she argues they're not as much of a WMD because they're opaque and they allow people to kind of see what goes into making a credit score. I, I think this is super similar. It's just not as scrutinized by people. So for me, I would probably point the finger 
not at the the company itself, but rather at the media reporting around it and not doing additional digging and pointing people in the right direction on these things. I think it's an information problem, not a problem in terms of negative incentives from the company necessarily, or like profit motive incentives resulting in negative harms. Right, and I think I'd, I'd like to interject um, here a little point about kind of population level policies versus individual level policies. But before I do that, Alexis, did you have something? I think that it's easy to say, oh, you can, you know, just be curious about these things and find answers if you so choose. But most people who are using Facebook, and I can think of people from our families, and I've seen someone from your family comment on your Facebook, and plenty of people from my family that I've blocked because I just can't take it anymore. That's not how most people view or use that platform. And of course, I don't think that's the way to go. I think you should be critical of, of all those things and be curious, but that's not the way most people are using social media. And But like, so whose fault is that? I, Like, I just don't know. It seems like O'Neill very much levies blame with Facebook, and I don't see that as much. And she does say that they've, like, made some adjustments and they are moving in the right direction to, to a certain extent. Um, but I, I think that the lack of information can probably be pointed at the media who is very upset at certain things that it perceives Facebook is doing, such as your Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica scandal and whatnot, those kind of things are blown out of proportion in my mind and they're not treated with honesty and allowing people to, those should be opportunities. Like those kind of points of analysis should give them opportunities to point back to these articles that are more industry specific that reference things uh, that can like help you increase uh, your scores, just give you more uh, information in general about what goes into your algorithm and your newsfeed. I, I think that it's media malpractice that has perpetuated this WMD or this perception of a WMD rather than malpractice from like the corporation Facebook itself. I yeah, feel I like can... it's fair to blame the media for a lot of things. Um, but I of course think that Kathy O'Neill is approaching it from the algorithm standpoint purely. And also I think it might be a little easier to attack Facebook and to hold its feet to the fire than to go after MSNBC and Fox and CNN because as we all know, our mainstream media is more partisan than it ever has been. I would argue more so certain uh, networks than others, but that's just a whole other a whole other problem. And I think for Kathy, just to you know, it makes sense that she's approaching it through this specific lens and. The media has a lot of responsibilities, in my opinion, that it has, like, you know, completely thrown to the wind. And so that's true. However, that's not really, um, like, the wheelhouse that we're dealing with here, you know? Is it possible that media is controlled by the 1% in many cases? And so it's in their best interest to not allow people... Uh, to understand these types of things that go into social media algorithms because they can better manipulate po mass populations through political means or through economic means by just giving them ads that are front-loaded to be what they're interested in. Um, 
O'Neill makes the argument that many firms attempted and were successful in making some sort of political um, progress or political manipulation to like a specific goal through things like Facebook ads and delivering people hard news in their news feeds. Uh, she claimed that there was some A-B testing done that led to some results. I think it's very possible that just media companies aren't incentivized to articulate, to make the public better informed on these things because they can sell them things easier and sway their political opinions more. And I'm not sure if the, and I'm not sure if their thought process is that well articulated and nefarious, but it certainly seems that they wouldn't be very incentivized to jump down those paths of making the public better informed. And so that's where I think my, I, I think I would, I would say there's more links there uh, than not. Yeah, I think I would agree. And I just want to add, sometimes in these conversations, there's this discussion of like how we talk about decision-making. Um, and I think that just because I see an ad on my Facebook or why, you know, freedom.facebook says Hillary invented AIDS or something like that, that doesn't mean <laughs> Likely. that. And that doesn't mean that I act that out in a certain way. Um, and I'm still like a, a discerning um, person, but at the same time, when we talk about the population level, sometimes those little nudges can have meaningful effects on the margin. So I think that you know these are important discussions to have. However, at the same time, I think the onus lies with the individual to critically self-examine themselves, consider their sources of information, and how they develop their opinions. And the media can at least call that a question and help people to consider where they get their knowledge and how they get their knowledge. I think they've been pretty good about doing that because it's, I mean, I've seen it in the news, written, or on TV before. Um, they could always do more, but, you know, they've got a lot to report on. What have, what have you seen written? Um, I've seen a lot of the fallout from the Facebook sort of centrifuge with Cambridge and Analytica and I believe CrowdStrike is somehow involved with that as well yeah I just mean um yeah I I just mean uh I guess I mean like how is that coverage being framed because in my mind it's not that they don't talk about it at all it's just that they're not pointing people in like good faith directions of hey here is more about what an algorithm is, what it does. It's not evil. You're, like this collection of data is just something that occurs. And here's how you can use it to to your benefit. Like here's how you can increase your posting things that maybe will get better coverage in news feeds, you know. Um, they could be more good faith about pointing people to industry-specific periodicals and articles that do kind of take the curtain back a little bit of what these algorithms are, do, and are, are framed on yeah and i believe there's a bit of a halo effect there just because they drill into the specifics of facebook's corporate practices doesn't mean that someone comes away with that um, and they look maybe they look at an ad and they subject that to a little bit more scrutiny than they have in the past yeah and i think you're right we're talking about the margins here when we talk about the actual impact level of this like um i i think it is like a little it's a it's a little uh, not informed to assume that everybody sees an ad and then votes a direction because of that ad. You definitely only have a very limited impact, and you're probably dealing with 
a couple of folks that it moves in one direction or the other, or maybe just contributes to the fuller context of information they're receiving about political candidates or parties or whatever. Um, so I, I think that's an important point of skepticism to bring out. I even think in one of the studies that O'Neill cites, she says like the political engagement uh, of a certain group that was being experimented on went up from 63% to 67%. So it's like that's minor and probably even within a polling error or like just other things could have maybe contributed to that uh, increase as opposed to what they were seeing on Facebook. Um, I think that's probably a good place to to end that question. I'm st I'm still a little skeptical about how she frames things on Facebook um, and about how the claims that are made about the Facebook platform and some of the marketing, uh, the assumptions about marketing that are present within O'Neill's writings. But I think that we did a little bit of a, a good job kind of explaining what my concerns are, and I appreciate both of your insights. Um, unless anybody else has anything to say on that, I think we're ready to move to Alexis's first question. Are we good? Okay. So there was a chapter in this book that discussed a concept that I had never heard of, but a, a new word that has been invented called clopening, which is basically for like low wage workers in like retail or in a place like Starbucks where they close one shift and then they open the very next day. So Obviously, this is problematic in a lot of ways, especially for people who are um, in school and need to study or get to class, and for people who have children. Um, Childcare is something, from what I've heard, that cannot be just changed on a dime necessarily, especially for people who don't have the support of, like, you know, their parents who can come help or um, babysitters that are close friends. So it's it's bad and. Um, I'm just going to read directly from my question now. The chapter about clopening and computer programs designed to create employee schedules while spending as little as possible at places like Walmart and Starbucks really hit home with me. I just started a part-time gig at Bath & Body Works to have fun and make some extra money, and thankfully the assistant manager does the schedule by hand, and it's prepared a week in advance. This issue kind of had millennial written all over it to me. I've seen so many of my peers, including Zach, run themselves ragged working these jobs in order to survive while in school. And I've even seen this trend continue into professional school. It makes time management nearly impossible, breeds unhealthy habits, decreases academic performance, etc. But low-wage workers have essentially zero bargaining power, so they just keep working, and the whole experience is made worse, not better, by WMDs. And yet millennials have this reputation of being entitled and lazy, etc. But it's really like, no dog, we're fucking tired and poor. So I don't really have a question, but I just wanted to talk about this because I think this is something that we've either been subjected to ourselves um, or we've seen like really close friends or family go through this. And it's, you know, usually we're working in these jobs in an effort to better ourselves and to just get through, you know, school or whatever, and we're not treated like human beings a lot of the time, and these WMDs make it even easier for corporations to to treat us poorly. Yeah, this is a great question, and I think that the phenomenon of opening, um, could you maybe explain like why it's good for companies financially to set those schedules? Because it seems to me, you know, you could just treat your 
workers ethically by inputting a field into your algorithm that says no worker should clove it. Yeah, I think, think good. I mean, I don't go ahead, Zach. <laughs> no, I, I was just going to say, and to add on to what Rotor is saying, I, I think what is the incentive of a clopening worker? Because that worker is likely to be tired, less productive, and less efficient from like a big C capitalism standpoint. I'm not sure why it makes sense to optimize human beings in that way if that's how you're viewing them. You're probably overworking your parts of your machine in a world where you have somebody come in four hours after they were already working. It probably makes more sense to give them that time off to where they'll be more friendly, more productive, in a customer service job, it's probably not great to be irritable and tired all the time. Uh, so no, I, I would tend to agree with some of those questions about what are the incentives for companies. And I, I want to hear what Alexis has to say on that. But my, my gut feeling and my guess would say that it's more efficient to plug all that data in and work with just the availabilities that people have in their schedule um, and running those numbers. And that's kind of what O'Neill articulates is the whole idea that People's schedules and availabilities um, can be so limited in cases to where you only have a couple of workers. So even though they might claim that they're no longer going to be clopening, they just can't afford to based on the hours and availability of the workers. I might be misremembering that chapter, but I, I believe that's kind of the theory that was levied by O'Neill. Well, the truth is I don't really know what the incentive is because it goes against all common sense. But... I mean, I think a big part of it is that you know that some days or some hours within each day are significantly busier, like especially in retail, like at a mall or something, like you have hardly no one come in like weekdays. So you can have just a manager and like a salesperson, which is what they do at my job. But then on like Saturdays from 12 to 6, it's like as many people as possible. Um, and also, in the book, um, Kathy mentions how places want to keep everyone below 30 hours, so then they don't have to provide any benefits for their workers. And so I, I really don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know why this is the way it is, and it definitely doesn't make sense, because human beings to operate, like, fully, not even just to be friendly, but also to not make like silly mistakes, to pay attention to detail, things like that. We need rest, we need sleep, and um, I don't know, this is just so stressful, and it, to me, makes the employees not be on their A-game because they're exhausted or they're super stressed and resentful and angry about the situation that they're in, so I don't know. Please help. <laughs> well... If I could jump in here, I think this goes back to even, um, you know, the Industrial Revolution, where we were starting to see the mechanization of production processes, and we started to see how companies would put people in horrible working conditions, sometimes children, sometimes ridiculous working hours, sometimes indoor air pollutants that would you know, kill people in weeks or months. Um, or potential disasters that would kill hundreds of people at a time because there weren't any safety standards. And I believe that the government has a role, it has a charge to improve working conditions for people, especially as we see unionization um, kind of trend downwards. So I do think the government has a responsibility to care to make sure that certain conditions are met for workers. However, you know, there's a limit to that. You don't have to require that your um, company, for example, 
gives you full tuition at a school if you work 10 hours or more a week and gives you mandatory breaks every 30 minutes with you know all kinds of ridiculous benefits. If a company wants to do that, then obviously they're free to, but I think at a certain point it becomes too much and overly burdensome on a company. So we need to decide as a public where we draw that line. I think clopening um, you know, is not great. <laughs> Um, and I've done it before, um, during my brief stint at McDonald's, started from the bottom, <laughs> but, you know, we need to decide as a society when, where to draw the line, and I'm not sure that clopening meets that threshold, although I don't even know where that threshold would be. I mean, aside from regulation, uh, I think that's one, a good point, but also, in general, isn't this a bigger societal question about like how what, what standard um, we want to be set for workers like globally? Like I'm not quite sure. Um, when you look at class stratification and you like compare the hours that somebody is working at a low wage minimum wage job like that to somebody that's at the very top of a C-suite of an organization, I think you will find some distinct differences in schedule consistency and probably just quality of life that goes beyond economic reasons, like beyond where they're living, beyond what car they're driving, just their quality of life to when they get to sleep, when they get to spend time with their family, when they get to um, have those opportunities uh, to be more human and engage in that humanity. I, I think that there are some larger existential questions that I have about that. And I don't know if clopening meets the threshold of regulation but I do know that even if you ban it, like Starbucks internally uh, in the book, O'Neill articulates banned it, and then they still just didn't have the staff to suffice. Like they banned clopening internally at Starbucks, but then they still ended up having to schedule people for clopins because there weren't enough people on staff to satisfy a certain amount of hours. Also, like they've gotten better, and that's been less the case recently. But my brother works at Starbucks right now, and he doesn't work clopins, but he does pre-close, which gets you out an hour before Starbucks actually closes, and then he opens the next day. So capitalism will always find ways to optimize in ways that are most economically in, uh, economically beneficial for the company. So I think even if you ban it from a regulatory point of view, who gives, who gives a shit? The company's going to schedule you for a pre-close, and then it open the next day because that's a way to get around the rule. So I don't know if legis like regulation is the right way to address this specific problem or if you're going to like find a way to regulate something like clopening. I'm not clear that there's a, a simple way to do it. It would probably have to be a more complex way to think about the problem overall. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I tend to agree with Alexis that it is a little interesting that this is a uniquely millennial problem of, hey the people without the bargaining power are probably going to be caught in that feedback loop and their only way to check back is regulation, right? To who you elect and the people whose policies you support. So in a world where there isn't any self-regulation from capitalist forces, I'm not sure that there's a future where you don't have this kind of regulation. Like at, at some point, the working class does, the working class does seem the levers, seem to grab the levers of power like they've done in every historical revolution since, right? You go... Let them eat cake and all that, but I don't know. What do you guys think? I don't know. I mean, I just feel like it's an impossible situation for people who 
are in it. And, you know, I was going to argue, well, if you don't have enough people to, you know, operate in accordance with these bans on clothing, then hire more people. I mean, obviously, Starbucks has the money to hire more people so your brother doesn't have to basically clothing. Um, so that's just, uh, but I guess that's capitalism, right? But Efficiency, I say, right? Like, Optimizing. <laughs> these people... Also, you can hire, you know, 30 people, but if they only get five hours a week, then maybe it's not worth true yeah that's true but i just feel like for the people who are in this cycle it is it's such a devastating situation i mean if you're working at burger king or something like one of our friends did in school maybe it's not the best example because his his (laughs) academic performance wasn't that great and it wasn't because he was working um but um like if, if your main goal is to make it through your degree for example um it's not too much to ask i mean my first manager that i interviewed with i said i'm being totally transparent like i need flexibility if you can't give that to me like okay i respect that but like i'm in school this is really just to supplement my income and i was like wait i don't have any income (laughs) but you know what i mean um and so it is possible and yeah bath and body works is a really huge corporation but aren't we talking about really huge corporations that can afford to have that human decency and if i was you know in a position where i didn't have student loans that were helping me like in undergrad where you're considered a dependent student so you don't qualify for as much and if you don't have parents who can help you like you are in that mindset where you don't have a choice and You need to be able to get to your 7 a.m. class, and you also need to be able to get to your 6 p.m. class, and you need to be able to study and do extracurriculars and have a sense of mental health and not develop these massively unhealthy coping mechanisms. I mean, it's so so unrealistic to me, and so do I think it rises to the level where we do need to regulate this? Yes, I do, because I've seen real people be affected by this lack of humanity and they really don't have a choice except just apply to a different fast food chain that's probably going to do the same thing and like Broder said so many places you know don't give out enough hours or whatever to where it's worth it or maybe it's further so the gas wouldn't be worth it or maybe there's not a bus stop close enough to a different place I mean there are so many factors and it just I don't know, I think it's so indecent when these people are people who are trying to better themselves. And that's just, abs- that has no value in the eyes of these corporations. I think your personal example is a really good one um, because it does drill down to like, yeah, we're talking about big, huge corporations, but in a lot of cases, and I don't know if this is consistent for everyone, but the scheduling comes down to the manager. and does come down who is the scheduling manager at those individual locations. I know when I worked at Starbucks and Pete's Coffee when I was in college, um, I was the scheduling manager my final year there, and I was pretty overworked. I was working that job as well as another one, doing school, engaged in speech and debate, um, other extracurricular activities and relationships that stretch you to where you're so thin to where you look at the whatever the automatic schedule that the computer spits back at you and you go, okay, that looks fine. And then you like send it out. So I, I think there might even be like an extrapolation of these causes down to the to, to the, the the causes that you're isolating of people being overstretched, overworked, and just trying to survive. 
that that might even also make the scheduling a symptom of those problems, I guess. Like, if if the person that's in charge of the scheduling is so overworked they don't have the time or the effort or the care to go over in detail and take into account, like, hey, Alexis is in school. She needs to be flexible. I can't schedule her on a clopin on this day kind of thing. Then that, that ultimately could be not the root of the problem, but rather a symptom of a larger one. Yeah. And this might be one of those times where using these algorithms is very beneficial. Um, and yeah, that's, that's interesting that you bring up, you know, when you were the scheduling person, you were probably what, like 20 years old. So yeah, you had a lot going on and, you know, still relatively new to even the workforce at that point. I mean, so maybe these algorithms and this data is, it is beneficial, super beneficial, but as my quote from the beginning kind of explained, like, we need to impose our human values on these algorithms, and so maybe these corporations, like, I don't know, do what corporations do and, and create, like, um, like a section of people to, to really interrogate and study the way that the scheduling is happening and get feedback from the managers. Just pick 50 stores, pick just, you know, some sample size and just look at what's really happening and work to improve the, the programs. Because I, I mean, I do think it's unrealistic for every single, you know, scheduling manager to do it by hand. Um, and that's just not probably the best use of that person's time either. So I think using this data is probably a good thing, but as is the case in like pretty much every single example Kathy brings up, it, it's fine until it's not, you know, and it works well until it doesn't. And losing that human component, well, not even losing it, it these computers never had that. You know, and I think we need to always remember like that they will never, ever, ever have the human component. We have to actively, proactively, and intentionally add it in. And so, I don't know, maybe this is an issue that like corporate needs to take up and just sample and, and survey or something. Like, I don't know. There has to be a way to improve this. Mm. Yeah, and maybe, maybe to just kind of seed some discord here and push back a little bit, I would say, um, you know, going to college is a privilege. Going to get an advanced degree is a privilege, and I'm not sure that you necessarily owe it to somebody to work around their schedule at a place like a fast food restaurant or like a retail department store. You know, a lot of people, a, a lot of times the injustice that we perceive are based off the necessities that we give these systems of like, I have to go to college or I'm not going to be successful, which on a population level may determine your income. But I think a lot of people, I think that may be a correlation rather than a causation, wherein if you go to a trade school, if you get a job right out of high school, then maybe you can work your way up in a company during those four years and get some work experience while you generate your own education on your own through reading great books like Weapons of Math Destruction. But like you still would have to go to trade school. A little bit entitled. But I mean, you would still have to like go to the trade school and pay your way through that, and have to have time to go to the trade school after high school in the interim. I guess like the way you look at it might be from like a societal we point of view. For in my mind, we should be giving people time for what they individually value because I am not going to value the same things that Alexis values or the same things that you value. So if Alexis values going and getting her master's degree. And that's one of the most important things in her life. I think we should have systems that are reflexive to those kind of individualized values. 
because there are not such a thing as a cut and dry societal we value in my mind. I think that those values vary from person to person. So like, I might, like if you don't deem college as something that's a necessity, somebody else might. And like, it's probably respectful to allow them the flexibility to engage in something they believe is absolutely a need and a necessity for their life. Other people that might be time with family, for other people that might be spending time with a dying friend. Like, I don't know what those things are, but I think our systems and our career paths should be reflexive to our individual needs and values because I don't want to live to work. I want to work to live. Wow, that was so profound. I need to say, though, like, it under that logic, Rotor, like, is there just no such thing as, like, social mobility? Because as we know, like, the class system is so ingrained. If you're born poor, you're probably going to die poor. Your parents were poor, you're probably going to be poor. And it takes an extremely, just extraordinary feat to change that, that you were born into. And yes, higher education is a privilege. 100% it is. Um, And anyone who benefits from that privilege should recognize that. However, for some people who who don't have the financial support of their parents at all because their parents are poor or who have, you know, children or whatever. And let's not forget that these are also the same people who are being preyed upon by for-profit universities that are charging them an exorbitant amount more than what their degree is actually worth. So let's not forget that they're probably getting a subpar education for more than what it's worth. But they they have to they have to work. And as easy as it is to say even in you know professional school, you're not supposed to work while you're studying for the bar, which is two or two and a half months. But that's not possible for people. I mean, just the average person cannot go two and a half months without working. And that is what we're taught. Don't work when you're studying for the bar because this is supposed to be your job and it's very important, which it is. But imagine that, but for a four year degree. You're going to study for four years to better yourself and to get this degree that will hopefully help you land a job, which, surprise, surprise, is not always the case, but don't work either. So either have help from your family, um, and like I said, student loans are oftentimes not enough for people to actually live on, especially for like dependent students, they just don't qualify as much federally. Or, you know, maybe they can apply for a private loan and we know the interest rates on those are not fixed and they're they're sky high, which is, I mean, like no rational person is going to make that decision. A rational person is going to get a job and it's out of necessity. So although higher education is a privilege, I, which it is, and people are not entitled to it, but I also kind of feel like, yeah, people are entitled to education. And although you don't need to go to some fancy institution to receive that education, those are the institutions that give us these degrees that for whatever reason, for better or for worse, are worth so much in our workforce. So it's very easy and it's very nice to say, it's not necessary, go get a trade, you know, be a plumber. We need plumbers, we need engineers. That's all true, but at the same time, our very own society doesn't even value that. And if we look even at like the presidential candidates, like there's only one who even when asked about free college says, you shouldn't have to go to college in order to be valued by our society. Like that's just how mainstream this argument that you have to go to college is. So we have to take our society for where it's at, which is that most people believe you have to go to college, but it's so expensive and 
unless you have the support of family or like some mm -hmm. large sum of money. Well, like, let me ask, who do you think benefits the most from that idea that you have to go to college to be successful in our society? Because I would say it's the very colleges themselves. I think y'all are losing the, the forest through the trees though. Like in my mind, we shouldn't be, I don't give a shit what society thinks is important. I care what you think is important as an individual. And like within reason, you should be, hang on, within reason, you should be allotted time and uh, the ability to engage in those things that you deem valuable and necessary for yourself and your family. Within reason is the key part. And there's probably some flexibility there. But I, I don't know if like college is necessary, but I know that some people believe that. And I think it's probably good to allow people opportunities to engage in those things. Sorry, Rotor, just wanted to finish that. No, that's exactly what I was gonna mention because within reason is a very qualitative term that is subject to public debate because when resources like federal student loans and like scholarships and indeed like the terms of employment at a variety of institutions is subject to that reasonability um, you know, ruler, that means that whatever that yardstick is for society ought to dictate the terms of what is just or unjust. Because if for me, I think... Is it though, or is it what the yardstick is for corporations? Universe, ...then that doesn't mean that you have an obligation to provide me with the opportunities to get two PhDs. That's sure, and that's fair, but like, is I don't I don't think that we think about these systems in the same way because I don't think it's society that's become the yardstick in a world where corporations control all of the bargaining power. The problem in my mind is that there is not bargaining power within the workforce, and if there was, we could probably have more debates on what is reasonable and what is not, and you can come to unionized contractual agreements individualized to each career field in each union on what those reasonability mechanisms are. In a world where work has become more flexible and more gig-centric, that's where we start to end up in these pain points and these pitfalls, in my mind. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think there's a lot you can do for workers to help organize themselves. But if you have infinite supply of workers and limited um, you know, spots to fill, I think that becomes a very tough problem for workers. And I agree it's a problem. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. Um, and it's probably, a in, unless anybody has anything else to add on that topic, it's probably a good spot here to transition onto our next question brought to us by Thomas Rotering. I've also realized I've been calling Rotor Rotor throughout the length of this podcast. That's because uh, when we were debate partners, that is the nickname that he had on the team. So from now on, if I refer to Thomas Rotering as Rotor, you know why. But anyway, just thought I should clear that up. Thank you, Zach. All right, my question focuses on health. Chapter nine of the book, especially the part on healthcare, was especially interesting to me. Um, for health in general, we all bear the burden of sickness, not only from infectious disease, which may transfer between people, but cost-sharing mechanisms in healthcare finance, administrative costs, accessing public programs to help in times of sickness, and lost productivity, um, those all induce a social cost to health. So when a patient receives care at a hospital, their insurer is billed by the provider according to largely arbitrary prices. So we all know the stereotype of like $100 you have to pay for a Band-Aid or $200 for an aspirin. So the insurer then has the ability to negotiate those repayments and say, no, we're not going to spend $100 on aspirin. We're only going to pay you 50. 
and they can leverage their membership size, their network contracts to arrange for that price. For example, hospitals could receive only 87 cents for every dollar spent paying for a Medicaid beneficiary. Hospitals then raise the price for everyone else to recoup these costs. So in this way, we also sort of share the costs of a variety of different sicknesses. My question is, when you are insured and enter into a risk-sharing agreement with every other insured person, how much of an obligation to the public does each of us have to stay healthy? Because Kathy talks about these different metrics that insurers use to sort of incentivize your health, and then you're subjected to lower premiums on your health insurance. I would argue that things like smoking, you should have to pay more if you smoke into your insurance program because that is a behavior you have the ability to influence and which can lower costs for everybody. Where do you all think that sort of threshold is? Do you think that you should have to pay more for BMI, for smoking, for steps taken, stuff like that? I think you leave out one important point of context from the book, which O'Neill brings up that specifically for smoking, studies have been dubious at best on linking costs to insurers, um, to individuals that smoke, because oftentimes the burden that they provide on the healthcare system comes when they are no longer employed, uh, because that's much later in life. And so uh, on the topic of like private health insurance, I'm not sure how much uh, I would I would rely on these system the these proxies at all uh, be, because I think like they're proxies at best they're not related to data that seems to be significant at least in the evaluation O'Neill is making. Yeah, and to clarify, what I'm saying is even if you're not on your employer's insurance anymore, if you're on Medicaid or another insurance, you are gonna pay more, and everybody else will pay more for Medicaid beneficiaries. So even though your insurer isn't paying directly for your smoking, they are paying more for everything else, which will subsidize the Medicaid recipient or Medicare recipient. I think this puts like weird standards of living on people and like incentivizes a moral panic in a lot of ways because we're looking for reasons to say things like smoking or overeating is bad when like they might be there, there might be like objective cause for belief that they cause negative health impacts in some circumstances, but also I don't think it's on the government to make those decisions for people like from a regulatory standpoint or even from like a economic incentive standpoint. I, I don't know. Like I think this is getting, especially with things like BMI, like smoking seems like a little bit of a clear debate to me in some ways, but like when we talk about what you eat, isn't that just as relevant as smoking if we had a more accurate measure for it? Like blood pressure, um, body fat. Like, I, I, I don't know. I think that the problem with, and, and that's where we get into weird things. Cause like maybe I see smoking as potentially something to look at as a societal like uh, trade off, like something we should look to our societal responsibility for. But also, I don't feel that way even if we had a more accurate measure for things like obesity or body mass, because I think that is more specific to other struggles that are unique that individuals face. And it doesn't dig into the reasons why people smoke, why people overeat, or why people do these things that might be negative for them. Maybe it's to regulate stress or depression or other like more, more like psychological things to cope with and deal with the world. So I, I don't, 
I don't feel super comfortable making judgments about those things because they seem deeply personal and difficult to apply data to when you can't drill down to the questions of why and only drill down on the impact results. It's like a net benefit analysis versus a deontological one. And ah, that's, that's not a great comparison. Ah, anyway. Thoughts? Other people? Can you see me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're here. Okay, great. I had a momentary Wi-Fi situation, so I missed some of your great response, Zach, but I'm also uncomfortable with it. Um, I don't know. I've been learning recently a lot about, like, the body positivity movement and not, like, the Instagram, like, mainstream version of that, but actually, like, fat people within our society and how they are truly marginalized. Um, and this this conversation about like their health and stuff there's actually so many um misconceptions when it comes to the health of a fat person and and really that should be a conversation between a doctor and a patient but then we also see um differences in treatment and diagnoses also along lines of gender and race which Rotor you probably know more about because you're actually in that field but i have read things and heard things um, and podcasts and stuff about how that's true and also like birthing people the process of you know seeing your doctors so much when you're when you're pregnant and like the the controversy of like home leavers or birthing with doulas and stuff like that is seen as a huge risk even though that's not backed up in research so <sighs> these are just some like examples that popped into my mind of, of why you know, something that might be seen as a risk or a, a personal choice that through insurance is burdening other people, that's not so simple. And in fact, those are often not choices, like Zach mentioned, you know, with overeating, for example. That can be tied so much to like psychological factors, hereditary factors. Um, and also there are matters of personal choice. Like if you wanna have a home birth, that should be your choice. But these misconceptions of, oh, well, you're more likely to need a C-section or you're more likely to need medical attention during your birth. Those are things that we believe writ large in society that are actually not backed up scientifically. So it's very uncomfortable for me as well. Yeah, yeah I can see why you'd be uncomfortable. And I do think that whatever the metrics are need to match with real health benefits. The book does a great job of showing how BMI is a horrible metric for your general health. However, beyond that, though, can I just ask you a question about that, though? Like, sure. beyond the general health benefits, how does that relate? Are, are you, like, discounting the psychological impacts and reasonings for, like, why those things can occur? Like, by general health impacts, how do you parse physical health with mental and psychological and emotional well-being? Like, is, are some of those things valued more than the other? It seems to me like you evaluate physical health as the primary concern, uh, whereas not, where you don't kind of credit those other factors where they might deserve it. Uh, that's a good question, and I'm not sure I can answer it. Um, I would say, in general, um, studies on efficiency or cost-effectiveness look into... Um, the costs incurred by sickness, um, health being the opposite in that framework. Um, so if 
you can prevent a hospitalization down the line and you're saving costs. You know, if we take a purely biomedical example, you could see maybe this would make it a little clearer, like, you know, you have a $30 copay to go and see your primary care provider. But if you're unvaccinated based off a personal exemption from being vaccinated, you have to pay $40 because maybe you represent a risk to that clinic for which an outbreak of measles would be very expensive. So maybe it's a way of incentivizing evidence-based proven interventions to make people more healthy and to avoid costs. Or again, so, BMI, maybe that becomes more complicated. So like a book you gave me um, or recommended to me a year or two back now, Crazy Like Us, I think does a good job of isolating some reasons I might disagree with you. Um, I, I think that you're discounting the idea of like, okay, so like maybe vaccinations, let's take that for example. Somebody has a devastating fear come after like getting misinformation from their family uh, their entire life and has intense anxiety around vaccinations and has not fully gone through the process of like breaking down those anxieties. And now they're being perceived as you as the state punishing them uh, because of these anxieties they have that are probably mostly out of their control. They commit suicide after that. How is the state like is the state responsible for some of those things and pushing them in that direction? I think maybe this is more likely with like depression and overeating. You are overeating and you are obese and now you are perceived as being punished by society and you are not good enough and you have to pay more. You are a second class citizen because of your depression, which is forcing you to do, which is not forcing, but you are coping with through like vices that might be unhealthy from a physical perspective, but are keeping you like at least level from a mental and psychological perspective, and maybe you can break out of that mental and psychological rut down the line, which leads to better physical health. But in the meantime, wouldn't punishing people in those situations tend to give us more negative health impacts than positive ones? Or at least there's the risk um, for that. I think that goes too far. I think that's, I think it's a bit, you know, issues of mental health surrounding BMI. I agree BMI is a bad I'm not even saying BMI. I just say like people that are like legitimately overweight and it's unhealthy. Can't there be mental and psychological impacts that are worsened by the state punishing those individuals? Potentially, but I mean, someone because the state evaluates like, economics as more important than mental health. Well, sure, because just because you charge someone ten dollars more to see their primary care provider doesn't mean that you doing that has a link to them committing suicide. I, you know, I mean, that's very, an example. Very extreme response. And I think that, you know, just telling someone, hey, you're going to have to pay more for your insurance because you smoke doesn't mean the state then bears responsibility for them taking their own life. I mean, that that's a very extreme example. So I think, you know, it's somewhere in the middle, but we have to at least acknowledge that certain behaviors have costs associated with them. So in the 1960s, and environment together have more of an impact on your health than individual health behaviors in general. So sure. that may be a better avenue for reducing costs. It may be a better avenue for, for example, charging a polluter more based off the people that it affects rather than the eating habits of the people in that area. We need better proxies, more accurate proxies that uh, take these things into account more comprehensively.
That that I agree with. One example I think is particularly relevant here. Between the 60s and the 80s, we closed many of the mental institutions that were pretty bad, albeit, but housed a majority of people that suffered from things like schizophrenia and other severe mental illnesses that did not have family support systems for them to be engaged with. Since the closure of those institutions, many of those individuals now are on the street and end up as homeless individuals. Additionally, recent studies, it's albeit very difficult and these studies vary widely in terms of their uh, actual percentage numbers, but homeless individuals are between 60 and 250% more likely to be afflicted by severe mental illnesses than the majority of the population. Also, homeless individuals are much more likely to um, die at a premature age because of impacts of mental health. I think the state probably bears, bears some responsibility in the linkage of individuals that are homeless schizophrenics after the closure of mental institutions that previously were there to try and support these individuals, like said, albeit in pretty bad ways sometimes. I think a smarter route might have been to try and reform those mental institutions and facilities to be more towards um, more ethical and moral ways to try and treat those mental illnesses as we got more science and data rather than closing them and foreclosing that battle altogether. This seems similar to me in terms of the state maybe not thinking through the impacts of its actions. If you don't think through the impacts of your actions and lead to an unintended really bad harm, i.e. homeless individuals now uh, being afflicted by severe mental illnesses or also the prison system being filled with mostly black and brown individuals because of a crackdown on drugs, these were not intended results of the state, but they are results of the state action nonetheless. So I think this these discussions that we're having about potentially penalizing individuals for these things could drastically reframe how we think about individuals that are overweight or drastically reframe how we think about individuals that smoke and think of them as less than ourselves, which I think is morally abhorrent, abhorrent to me. And those are kind of the things I'm considering when I say, hey, does the state have some level of responsibility in this? said about the mental health institutions in our country, I think we should always check back against unintended consequences, and that's where feedback systems come into play with WMDs and other systems like that. However, I wouldn't say we shouldn't try, <laughs> and I don't think that this is especially egregious. You know, if we see data that says people are committing suicide at epidemic rates because they have to pay extra for their health insurance and they're being I mean, take away suicide. That's an ex that's one example. I just mean like in terms of how it frames how we think about people, you probably don't make people that are overweight feel any better about themselves. And maybe maybe is that's a potential. I don't want to like make light or make suicide the average outcome. That's not what I'm insinuating. It's probably the worst case scenario. Um, so I, I like I don't want that to be flippantly tied to what I think the reaction would be. So. I think the main example that Rotor was using was you're going to have to pay more for your insurance because you smoke. And although I do think that like smoking cigarettes and vaping is just egregious and stupid, um, like I probably do things that are bad for my health too. Like honestly, like I don't exercise as much as I want to. I don't necessarily sleep as much as you're supposed to. I eat too many carbs because I love pasta, like, the most in the world, like, you know, and so I just feel like 
punishing someone because they smoke, I mean, what if they grew up around smoking or what if they are um, predisposed to, like, you know, addiction? Like, I, I don't know. Like, or what if they're working clopins every night and there's, like, no other way to deal with the stress in their mind because they haven't been exposed to meditation or, like, some other weird, privileged way to cope with stress? And then, like, the, the other um, physical effects and symptoms of mental health extend far beyond like being depressed binge eating gaining weight and becoming obese like it's so many i mean body dysmorphia anorexia bulimia um you know all of those are mental health issues that have physical symptoms or you know severe depression that leads to self-harm um all all of those things um and so it's, it's more than just, you know, binging and, and gaining weight because you're depressed. Like, mental health has so many physical uh, symptoms of that that find their way into our healthcare system that I think we have to be super sensitive to. But even things that are seemingly disconnected from mental health, like smoking, and that it's easy to say, oh my god, that's stupid, why would you ever, like, puff on a cancer stick? Like, yeah, but I mean, we're not all these perfect examples of like health quote unquote you know and I don't want to punish one of my peers who smokes when like I'm not always doing the right things either like am I supposed to have a Fitbit that counts my steps because I don't but you know what I mean um, I mean, there's, there's a middle ground here. And I want to key on something you said to agree with you. Like, I'm not trying to totally push back on Rotor. Like, the feedback point is very important. And, like, giving these systems, consistently giving them new data to edit and adapt and everything. I think that feedback is key, and I pro we probably agree more than not on the measured approaches to this. What were you going to say, Rotor? Basically, what I'm trying to say is that we all have a responsibility to each other to be healthy because we all pay for each other's healthcare in a variety of different ways. We are connected and we all have an, a responsibility to maintain health if we expect somebody to pay for it. But what is health? I don't think I'm willing to give up the level of freedom that it takes to optimize a healthcare system in a way that would make it accurate to take into account emotional, physical, psychological, and, and otherwise, right? I, I think you have to, like Alexa said, what am I wearing, a Fitbit that tracks my steps and sends them to the government? It also tracks my sleeping patterns. It also, like, and that affects my rates of healthcare coverage. It's, I have to meal plan and, like, mark everything that I eat and send that data to the government so that they can see, like, how that's, a, I don't know. Like, this seems, like, taking this to its logical extent and making these models so precise to where they can accurately actually read these things is not something I'm comfortable with from, like, a, a libertarian freedom perspective, I guess. That makes sense. And, again, there's a middle ground. Would you say there's nothing they should be able to tie with the premiums you pay for insurance? Age. Age you can, you can tie? I mean, like, <laughs> the... I think that there is much more um, data that's less relevant to things like mental health when it comes to health and age. And obviously you will have outliers, but age seems to be way more fair to me of a way. And, and like, it's, it's a proxy. It's for sure a proxy. And that's like what O'Neill articulates is not always giving us the best results. I just, like I said, I think I would rather rely on something that's a proxy and seemingly sort of fair in colorblind and other things like age 
than I would be to give just gobs and terabytes of data about myself to the government or private corporations so that they can um, well, make decisions. Because like I think let's that just... the, the middle ground you're articulating isn't accurate enough for me to be comfortable with it, I guess. Like where we talk about the smoking thing or the obesity thing. I mean, if we just took it like way down, let's say that you, Alexis, and I decide to form our own insurance pool where we each pay $50 a month into this pool. And then if one of us gets sick, they're able to access the pool of money to pay for their health care. Now, I, because I love diving off of cliffs and squirrel suits, decide that I'm also going to smoke, that I'm also going to, you know, when I'm not diving off of cliffs and squirrel suits, to have a very sedentary lifestyle and have a lot of other risky health behaviors. I hate vaccines. It's just big pharma trying to take my money. So I've got all of these risk factors in my life because that's what I want for my life. And then- But like, why do you want those things? Because that's just, you know, who I want to be. I think I would be more interested in the context that's surrounding those high risk decisions that you're making, especially if you knew what the impact of those risks are, because this is my argument about mental health is I think like- I'm sorry. Come on. So then Alexis is the picture of health, takes care of her body, doesn't do anything risky, is a very safe driver. He's the picture of health. I access our pool of money way more often than Alexis does. Should she have to pay the same amount that I do? Because I, I think a lot of people would say that's unfair. I think is someone who cares about your humanity, right? And as another person, I'd be more interested in why. And I apologize. Everybody, I cut people off a lot, and that's a bad personal quality, and I'm working on it. But <laughs> no, I, I think that that is like where I come down on this is I don't know, like, why are you making those high risk decisions if you understand why those were like what those things result in? If you don't understand that smoking is tied to cancer, I'm probably trying to educate you on that. If you don't understand that you might get hurt skydiving, I'm probably trying to educate you on that. And like, if you do understand those things, this is where it comes down to like, why are you making those high risk decisions in all of those areas? Like what's making you so nihilistic on the world? That's uh, it's my, maybe it's not even that, right? Like maybe it's something else. But there has to be something from a from a pragmatic perspective um, that's driving that decision making. And I don't know. Like I, if I could get to the root of that, we could take into account your mes- mental and psychological health, and it plays into the equation. And maybe it is fair. But, but I just don't know if fair is the right way to look at it because I care about. And I respect that. But if, if we got to the root of it and I, you know, have a good perspective on it. And but I like, what would that perspective be? Behavior, like if you're doing a bunch of life threatening things. <laughs> so you're saying that if I'm enlightened enough, I will be more healthy. I, I think enlightened might be the wrong way to put it. But I think folks that are struggling, in my experience, folks that are struggling with various things in life, that are in unstable or dealing with different emotional, mental, or otherwise not physical problems will tend to make more riskier decisions. And this is anecdotal and not driven by much data, but it is driven by most individuals that I've interacted with that share similar strains of depression that I have. And I think that like those risky behaviors are often co- highly correlated 
to things that are going on that are apart from things. They're coping mechanisms in a lot of ways. And that's probably not all inclusive. And maybe I'm coming at this from like a narrow minded perspective with just framing from my own experiences. Alexis. And I like that micro. I really do. I appreciate that. Um, but like if, if that's what my friend Rotor wants to do and to, you know, live his best life, so to speak, and you want to go free solo El Capitan and you want to skydive and you want to snowboard and stuff like if that makes you happy then I'm willing to pay more to cover you but also just aside from that like in in my view like in a world where you have to pay twice as much because of your quote-unquote risk-taking behavior that's the same world where you're gonna get diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer or something that has nothing to do with your risk-taking behavior and boom like life happens shit happens and like cancer doesn't discriminate like sure maybe like mouth cancer and lung cancer from smoking sure there's a, there's a correlation there but in a lot of other instances i mean i remember being at christian nats finding out that one of my residents who was 18 years old was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and that has always stuck with me because like things don't discriminate and um what did i just read it was it in this book something that said that medical bills are the leading cause of bankruptcy yeah. in America. So because I love you and I, I, I love people that I don't know in this country and I am very aware of the unfortunate fact that medical issues don't discriminate and oftentimes don't have very much, if anything, to do with personal decision-making processes, I will pay more. That's a great take. To make sure that you're, to make sure that you're protected. Well, the traditional understanding of insurance is that we all bear the same risk of something random like stage four pancreatic cancer. So we all pay the same amount to protect ourselves equally. But do we? Maybe you can find some genetic reason why somebody's more prone. So, But like, do we all share the same risk? Because you just hit on it. Like a lot of these things are due to genealogy and family history. And genetically, you can be predisposed to many of these things. Not only that, you can just live in an area where a corporation's toxically dumping things and have way higher risk associated with developing things like cancer. We all know that there's warrants of toxic dumping on Native American lands in the early 1970s that led to highly correlated effects of cancer for those communities. Google it. I, I don't have the specifics on hand, but that's an argument we used in debate that I still believe to be true because at the time I researched it. So I, I think there's... That's not the case. Like that's a that is an uninformed way to look at ins- to look at the risk involved with insurance in my mind. Beautiful take by Alexis, by the way. I think the whole I love people that are not I love people in this country that I don't even know is like a really egalitarian way to look at things and I really strive to try and treat people equally and have that outlook on things. So I just wanted to pay Alexis a pat on the back. Yeah. I think that would be awesome if everybody felt that way, but I was just trying to reframe the issue from one of um, arbitrary punishment for those who may engage in risky behaviors for whatever reason to one of fairness, because if you take on more risk, if you intentionally put yourself in harm's way because of your unique convictions and ways you want to live your life, then you shouldn't expect somebody else to pay for those decisions. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate it. You're no, it was it was very very thought provoking, and as someone who is constantly like watching <laughs> presidential debates, being like, 
Um, someone please explain this whole healthcare debate to me because I don't understand. Like, it was very, very helpful, and I don't fault you at all for, like, approaching that question because I do think it's important, and I don't think people at large even really necessarily understand that on a practical level that is how our insurance operates. So I think it's if more people did understand then maybe they would introspect because i'm all for like the introspection and the looking in the mirror what i'm not for is holding up a mirror to someone else and criticizing them to the you know highest degree like you know because of things that we can't see like mental illness or hereditary factors or you know just shit science that is actually not based on science or medicine at all you know like that's what i'm not okay with but if conversations like these can cause introspection um, and for people to think more about the things that they're doing and why, then I'm all for that. I think that's why I generally bristle at like the hypothetical because I it appears to me as a way of like, this is the way that we think is the best way to live from a societal standpoint. It's like, bro, you don't know what the fuck I'm going through. Like, you don't know why I choose to yeah. do these things. Like, there's a lot more context, I think, that goes into that. I just don't know if the proxies of correlating like risky behaviors from a medical perspective are good enough for me to overcome the context of the individual. And it's a good hypothetical. Like I said, I, I definitely appreciate the discussion. I just think we think about the power structures a little bit differently. I, I think it probably isn't always the role to look what's ultimately fair because fairness doesn't always take into account context. Look at the way like that we evaluate college scores. And if you are like a lower income individual and test lower, maybe maybe you overcame like you were in a school district that had no EP classes and had historical low testing and you scored like five points lower from some privileged kid who was in a much better situation in school district than you. Does that discount like is that person a better learner? Or are they smarter? I, maybe maybe not. Like they probably had less access to educational tools that allowed them to test at a higher rate. Because testing is ultimately a proxy for how well you're able to learn and obtain education and probably doesn't take into account all the rest of that context. And I, I that's why I bristle so much. Like, it's not to say that I disagree with your moral outlook on the issue. I just think about the system, I think, differently. Right. And I should also add, maybe I made it sound like your personal decisions are what is causing healthcare costs to be out of control in this country. And that's not the case. Um, the cost of healthcare in this country, those decisions aren't made in our personal lives. They're made in backroom deals. They're made in pharmaceuticals, gouging public entities for prices. They're made through toxic exposures. They're made through companies that addict people without giving them fair warning of that addiction. And Jewel. Then <laughs> oh, stop it. Hang on. <laughs> Jewel, there has not been one case vaping relate uh, of the vaping deaths or illnesses that are directly related to Jewel. We should have this debate another time. Yeah. Something WMDs. on the Google Doc that I, I don't know where it went or who wrote it. I, it was definitely Zach because it mentioned 538. The whole thing disputing how Kathy stated that like 538 wasn't... Uh, the polls were inaccurate when it came to the 2016 election that's a good segue um, and we should probably get to that yeah definitely and we should probably transition out of this main segment to that the to our final segment in which we'll discuss 
some of the fast facts, such as that one that Alexis just articulated. Anybody have any final thoughts on these things? To close off this section, I would say, regardless of our evaluations of different data and its relative worth, I think that these conversations ought to be had in the public space rather than backroom deals by data scientists who, while very skilled at their craft, may lack um, certain perspective that we ought to be able to offer. Agreed. Great. And we're back for our final segment. So in this segment, we're gonna go through just a couple of like concluding thoughts we have as we wrap up our conversation on weapons of math destruction. So first, I wanna open it up to the floor. Did this book change your mind about anything? Rotor, thoughts. This book largely confirmed my fears that corporations were using very specific data about our online presences to confirm our beliefs, specifically market things to us that may not be what is best for us, and ultimately influence us on a population level. It didn't necessarily change you know, anything major about the way I think about these issues. However, it did make me pretty mad about some of the sentencing issues that were talked about and it certainly makes me approach my online presence with more scrutiny than before that's concise alexis your thoughts so i was pretty ignorant about all of this like i had a suspicion about like the facebook stuff but the way that WMDs touch so many various aspects of our life, from anything that may be trivial to, as Roder touched on, you know, people's liberty literally being taken away because a judge just looks at an arbitrary chart and says, okay, this is what you're sentenced to. It, it was just a very educational um, experience which I appreciate. And as Rotor also said, I think it's very important to understand all of this, but especially, not even especially, but there's a very personal aspect to like the social media part of it because, you know, we're all pretty much on social media. We actively use it to different degrees, but just moving forward and understanding those things and being able to educate um, like our loved ones and our friends a little bit better is is very important you know especially we didn't get to any of the questions about the election although i think zach and i both had some questions about that but it's it's fine that's for the future it's very timely though to be aware of all of this stuff and also you know every single other issue that she brought up is important to be informed on so I'm not well-versed enough to, you know, push back like you guys are or criticize certain aspects of it. I'm just taking it, you know, with a grain of salt and getting informed and integrated into thinking about things this way. Um, and I hope to be able to become more knowledgeable about it moving forward. Nice. And I think the way I think about it, I I don't think it 
specifically change my mind about anything. Um, but I, and I also find myself agreeing with a mass amount of the analysis that O'Neill is doing throughout the book. However, I also don't think that I come away from the book with the same perspective that she does. Um, I think she's very pessimistic about the outlook. And maybe I'm just reading tone into this where I don't need to be, but it does seem to me she's pessimistic about the current state of algorithms and data. In my mind, we've gone through the most uh, intense uh, industrial revolution that the world has ever seen in the last 10 to 20 years, with or probably 20 to 30 years, with the rise of the e-economy with the rise of automation, with the rise of the continued implementation of technology within our lives. I think all of the technological advances we've seen are just like rocket fuel compared to the pace of advancement in the past. And even if you look at previous industrial revolutions when we automated farming or we automated production in the 1920s, O'Neill articulates that there's lots of people that get hurt each time an industrial revolution occurs and we should be working to like prevent those things from happening but in my mind in a system of capitalism that seems to be the way the world works you get to advancement through the free market because the people ultimately do control the levers of power eventually through voting through forming unions through finally being able to say hey we outnumber you and you are not powerful without our numbers however i don't think we've achieved that point with the digital industrial revolution that we've had in at the turn of the century and beyond I think we'll get there, and I think that society has a way of self-correcting itself under capitalist methods. And I think that we're probably getting closer. Like I said, I think Facebook's actually not as bad as O'Neill is articulating in terms of their transparent and um, opacity. And so at the end of the day, I've come away saying like, yeah, there's some really bad things that existed and continue to exist within weapons of math destruction and within different WMDs that are persistent throughout our environment, but... At the end of the day, I, I think I see us on a path to getting better. And I think that I see us on a path to people pushing for more accurate, more concise, and more individualized data points um, and analysis. So my hope is that my hope, my outlook is a little more optimistic. I think we're probably on a path to positivity, uh, despite all the negative harms that exist within the status quo. Um, I, I, I seem to think they will correct like they have in eras past. I don't know what's uniquely different about this era. For example, um, and I don't mean to keep droning on, I apologize, but O'Neill in the final, it's either in the conclusion or the last chapter, talks about when President Clinton in the 90s signed the uh, Marriage Equality Act or the, uh, it's like the something, it's the something marriage act, but it like reaffirmed marriages between a man and a woman. At the same time, IBM in the 90s opened up benefits to same-sex couples which is like capitalism did something totally different than where the state was at the time because they couldn't afford to miss out on the gay and lesbian talent that was developing in the tech industry. And so the free market corrected in that way. And like maybe that's not the best incentives for a company to correct when it comes to talent and profit motives, but it doesn't mean it didn't correct. I think a lot of times societal well-being does match up to the profit motivations of corporations. It's just about weaving and figuring out like how long it takes to get there. And it probably takes way too long in many cases. But for me, that's a much larger problem of capitalism, which I think in my mind, and you'll probably learn this as we get further into this podcast, capitalism is the number one harm uh, causer when it comes to a lot of these more systemic issues. And I think there's lots of links that can be drawn there. But anyway, that's that's a little uh, longer than I meant to go. I apologize. Always the optimist. 
I, you know, I, I don't know. I just think that, like, we've had industrial revolutions before and things generally get better over time. Like, at least in our recent history of the last 200, 300 years of the United States, things aren't, like, they're not perfect. And I don't think we'll ever be perfect. And we always need to adapt and continue to adjust and get better and strive for that. But I, I don't know. I think 2019 is better than 2002 was in terms of the wild, wild west of the internet and how we treated workers and everything else. Not to uh, rain on your parade too much. I agree with you in a lot of ways. But if this new digital economy is impacting the way that we receive and interpret information, I think that has a very insidious potential to nip any type of civic action in the bud surrounding this specific issue. So I think it requires a lot of awareness and a lot of intentionality in order to achieve the kind of things that you're saying we will. Maybe, but I also think that activists are provided much better tools in a digital era. Like the ability to organize has become much easier in a more connected and internet world than it was in 1960. You can get a protest with thousands of hundreds of thousands of people put together in a much easier fashion because of the advancements in communication and technology. I don't view these things as inherently evil or insidious. It's about the forces behind them. And I just tend to believe that over time, the the workers, the general people, the average American, they control the and that's so that's so subjective. But like the people that are not the one percent, the people that do not control the majority of the wealth, do control the levers of power. They just don't always realize the power they have in numbers. And so, like over time, I think they tend to over history. When I look at history, it seems to me that in many cases they over time realize that, and it takes longer depending on when it is but they are able to make positive change. I admire your optimism. Look at the Industrial Revolution and like what came out of that. It took people being blown up in factories and losing fingers, but think we instituted laws to protect against those things. And I'm not saying it's good. Like I'm up for a debate on a different type of economy than capitalism. And maybe there's like more creative ways in which we can control and distribute wealth. But in the system we exist in, I, I think it moves slow. Things get better, but like there's lots of these harms that will happen unless you switch systems altogether. And I don't know what we would switch to, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a good time to transition here to our next little piece, uh, which is fast facts. So we put together just a couple of quick things from the book that we thought we could talk about just quickly before we ended um, the first one on page 202, two, uh, excuse me, on page 220 in the afterward, O'Neill claims that it's bad enough that the polling in 2016 failed to reflect reality, claiming that the polls did not get it right and were not a reflection of the status quo. I would levy that that is incorrect. And the data I will bring to this is from 538's election model. She specifically cites 538 as one of the data collectors that got the election wrong. If you look at 538's model from 2016, you'll see that polls tightened and that Donald, Champ, uh, Donald Trump's chances got significantly better as the election season came to a close during the last two weeks of the election season, actually, or the time period that I'm focusing on. On October 23rd, 538 gave Hillary Clinton an 86.2% chance to win the election based on its aggregate of polls. By the time we got to November 5th, that had dropped from 86.2% to 64.7%. This is after James Comey had said that he had, was reopening the Clinton investigation. Her odds decreased by over 20% over that period. 
She slightly rebounded and got to 71.4% chance to win the election by election day, but never recovered to that 86% chance that 538 gave her just two weeks before the election on October 23rd. That being said, I think the polls did a pretty good job of reflecting the uncertainty in that election. I don't know if O'Neill is being genuine in how she's reading the data in these polls, because they are not claiming that Hillary Clinton will win the election. They are saying that seven out of 10 times she will win the election, which means three out of 10 times she will not if you run this simulation over and over again, because they are recognizing they are a proxy. They are not exact. So I don't think it's very genuine to say that the polls got it wrong and Site 538 specifically is getting it wrong when they show a significant decrease in the odds and then something that's improbable happens when they say that that improbable thing got more probable over the last two weeks of the election. I also just don't think that's a great way to look at polls because unlikely and unpredictable things happen all the time. And that's why polls don't say 100% certainty. That's why they give confidence intervals and margins of error. So that's just the one fast fact that I wanted to talk about there. Did anybody have any thoughts on that? No, that's a great point. And I think that, um, you know, the, the influence of foreign governments, as well as innovative social media marketing firms, um, kind of just confirms in my mind that WMDs require a closer look and they require increased scrutiny from the public. I agree with that. <clears throat> yeah, I'm really glad that you addressed this because I was disheartened when I got to that part of the book because I'm I'm not a political strategist at all. I don't understand it, and I get a lot of um, my insight from like NPR and 538, and it it's just I was I was saddened um, through reading Kathy O'Neill's obvious frustration and disbelief in in polling, and I think. I was um, prone to believe her just because I understand that polling is so complicated and so nuanced and it takes a very, very well-crafted poll um, to yield any anything that we can hang our hat on. And um, so I was, I was believing her um, and it, it sucked. It was unfortunate and discouraging. So I'm glad that you um, addressed that because I feel like if we can't trust you know something like 538 then really what can we trust like there's nothing so well, I think... although it's not perfect and it's never claimed to be perfect I, I I know that you are right when you because you like literally Nate Silver's book is like your bible and 538 is close behind it so <laughs> I believe you <laughs> I completely believe you. I wouldn't I'm say believe me but like just it. Just when looking at it um, and looking at other sources, and, and I'm glad you brought up the single poll thing, you can't really hang your hat on a single poll, but when you look at an aggregate of polls, it clearly reflected that Hillary Clinton's chances got worse over the last two weeks of the election. And also, it's important to keep in mind that this is one of the closest elections in recent memory. It's the, it's the largest margin by which somebody won the electoral vote but lost the popular vote. By losing the popular vote by over 2 million votes, that's something that had never happened before. And so I just think like focusing on how close that election was and how it could have flipped either way, if you redistribute those 2 million votes that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by to certain states that she lost for the electoral college, like Ohio or like Florida, 
then you would probably, we'd be saying a different thing on election day. We'd be like, oh, the polls got it right. Like, oh yeah, Hillary Clinton won. It was close, but you know, like she pulled it out. The polls got it right. So I think it's a little flip to criticize polls in an election that is that tight um, when it's something that's so unpredictable and we have no priors on a candidate like Donald Trump running in the past. Like he was such an anomaly that it's like, how do you tie? You have to have a level of uncertainty when evaluating those things. I think that makes me question a whole lot. I mean, it's tough not to be relegated to this, you know, world of, of uh, just nihilism in terms of the data we receive because a lot of our elected officials make decisions based off public polling. You know, that might be the difference between a coin flip and a certain course of action. Mm -hmm. So if they're working on bad data or misleading data or they don't interpret that data correctly, then they could potentially you know, choose to invade a country, choose to mix yeah. a healthcare plan, choose to make these wild changes in our government based off data that they don't understand, which is terrifying. And you and I, Rotor, know that the military uses models and data like this all the time when determining whether to invade Iran or conduct a nuclear strike. And they go, oh, we can't do that because our model says it'll lead to this, or oh, we can do that because the Bantasmer danger line is not crossed by whatever the model is number is spitting back out at us. The military also still uses BMI. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> so it's just flawed all over the place. Okay, one more quick fast fact uh, before we get to a final concluding question. So one thing that I think is super helpful that people should just be aware of from this book, you can request... Uh, uh, let me find the specific quote. So you can request to see um, your credit reports and you can request to see them once a year and potentially amend any errors that you catch within your credit reports. That's something that I didn't know and I think is probably pretty valuable because as O'Neill points out, credit reports have errors in them all the time and people just don't notice them because you don't like request and look at them. And it can be difficult to fix them uh, and it can take years sometimes to expunge bigger flaws but it's probably important to do that audit on yourself every once in a while, even if it's not yearly. It's probably valuable over the course of your life to take a look at those things if you have the means to. Um, so I just wanted to call attention to that because that's something I didn't know. You can request your credit scores and uh, get them to correct the record, companies like Experian or whoever else. Right, and you can even request a credit, credit report from each of the three credit agencies once a year. So that's a total of three times a year. It will not affect your credit, regardless of whatever advertisement says checking it a certain way may. You can go directly to their websites, it's TransUnion, Experian, and what's the third one? I don't know. I don't know. The third one. <laughs> Check your credit, kids. Make sure you're good to go. It won't hurt your credit. Great advice. But you can't check your e-scores, and you can't check the profiles that these different firms make about you. <laughs> so unfortunately, we haven't gotten that far yet. Yeah, there's definitely things that are um, just an impact in my mind of the, the lack of speed of regulation of how companies make decisions in a digital era. It definitely seems like we don't have legislators that are up to the task, whether it be age or information or whatever, to regulating those types of companies from using things like e-scores and proxy data to make decisions about us. 
So to wrap up, we just thought we'd ask one question and go around the table, uh, kind of briefly get our thoughts um, about something that maybe encapsulates a conclusion that O'Neill is drawing at the end of the book. At the end of the day, I just want to ask, hey, to both of you, would more precise algorithms and predictions of our, um, well, let me ask it like this. At the end of the day, are algorithms a good thing? If these things continue to get better and more individual and less uh, about grouping us into similar groups and more about identifying us as individual people, is that good? Are we comfortable with those things? Or are we generally adverse to these algorithms on face because of what it requires in terms of giving up privacy or giving up individual freedoms? I'll start with Alexis. I think if which I don't necessarily have reason to believe that this is the case, but if at a large scale these algorithms are being interrogated deeply and the resources and time necessary are being committed to add that human, um, that human effect, the compassion, the empathy um, to these models, then I'm all for them. As I've said and as Kathy acknowledged multiple times throughout the book, these are good i mean this is math this is science this is um something that makes our world run more smoothly until they get to a certain point and i think also that being said is that we as consumers as citizens as employees we have come to expect these things in a certain way whether or not we have the vocabulary in the name to say oh that's an algorithm we are aware of them and we our expectations and our values have already been shaped by these algorithms. So I think if they were to just disappear, we'd be pretty pissed off. We'd be like, what's what's going on? You know, why is my Netflix pulling up um, like a documentary about football for me or something? You know what I mean? Like it would be annoying. So I'm, I'm all for it. However, I'm definitely skeptical that um, these algorithms, the most prevalent and insidious WMDs are going to be changed. <coughs> Rotor. If they do, then Rotor. I'm all for it. Rotor. Yeah, I think algorithms and the data economy is here to stay. So our best bet is to maybe alter or influence them in a way that represents our values, like Alexis said. Um, values of dignity and respect for others, values of compassion and honor. Um, and I think it may be a long time before that changes or it might not change, but regardless, I think that better knowledge of those systems is the key to changing them. So, I mean, Kathy O'Neill has my respect and I'd like to thank her for you know writing books like this to help inform people about the issues at play. Um, but I would say that we all can maybe take another look into the way that we treat people in our day-to-day -day life because, you know, not to sound too preachy, but I'm sure we all silo off parts of our lives as saying, well, this is my job. I've got to treat people a certain way. This is my personal life. I've got to treat people a certain way. This is my online presence. I'm going to treat people a different way in that regard. We all have a responsibility in whatever, in whatever forum, in whatever medium that we interact with others or influence others, to be reflexive about our actions and to consider their personal circumstances. 
Nice. Beautiful. Yeah. I think I tend to agree with like the first part of Rotor's statement and, and the, in response to that question, like I don't necessarily think they're good. And I think long-term, if I was king of the world, I would um, advocate for less of the big data economy and figuring out ways to better put in safe rails and guards that protect against the infringement on individual rights of privacy and like freedom. And that might be coming from an unrealistic expectation of the world. Because I do think that O'Neill is certainly right in that this is inevitable. Like these algorithms and the big data economy is not going anywhere. So given that reality, what can we do to make things better? And she sums it up in kind of that last sentence of the afterword that I read at the beginning of the podcast is my quotation. But they're only going to become more ubiquitous, which means that we must demand systems that hold them accountable become ubiquitous also. We have to build that framework to keep them accountable for the long term, based on evidence that they're legal, that algorithms are legal, fair, and grounded in fact, and then keep evolving what those things more based on the context. I think that's kind of the key and the only thing. Kathy, uh, Kathy O'Neill is certainly fighting the good fight in all of this, um, even if I like take specific instances of pushback in one area or another. On whole, I'm very much in favor of her outlook on what we should be doing to adapt to the fact that these things are inevitable. I don't think they're good, though. I don't like getting targeted ads. I don't like the fact that companies have profiles on me. I don't like the fact that the state can look at where I'm at and determine my credit score or determine like how risky I am of a borrower based on what street I'm driving on after my shift, which is one example that O'Neill brings up in the book. Like, If you're driving on a high-risk street, they might assume that you're going to the strip clubs on that street or you're a low-income individual and you should be evaluated as such. I think these are dangerous assumptions and I'm not willing to give up the personal freedom that takes to get to reality. And so that's kind of where I come down on, but I think that's kind of a unrealistic expectation of the world. So given that I'm, I'm on board with O'Neill. Yeah, that's great. Bravo. And so, this concludes the first episode of uh, Make America Read Again. What do we call this thing? Uh, oh Critical Book Club. We'll come up with the name. We'll hopefully have some music on this too and make it, uh, you know, more professional. But you know, uh-huh. it comes with time. Anyway, I think that's all. Do we know? We have any idea of what book that we're doing next month, or we don't? We're 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 holding on announcing that. We're waiting. Is that what we decided? Oh. We are holding off on announcing it, but rest assured it will be something critical and engaging and insightful. So tune in next time. Rotor gets to pick the book if you couldn't tell. So stay tuned in, tune in next month to kind of see what we read and how we break it down. If you have any suggestions, please reach out to us on our social media channels, which I'm sure we will have developed by next month. And uh, we'll be happy to hear any feedback or criticism. I think we went a little bit longer than we intended to on this episode, but I think we had some substantive discussion. So I appreciate you both for being here. Alexis, thank you so much. My pleasure. Rotor, I appreciate you, buddy. Thanks for adding context to the conversation. Thank you, Zach. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And I am Zachary Douglas, and that is it for the first episode of Critical Book Club. Thanks again. Excited to continue these discussions and to keep reading.